Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new American success story in which liars and cheats can make it all the way to the presidency of the United States, and tomorrow a spectacular liar and brazen fraud will be sworn in as a congressman. Joining us as a new year begins to discuss what has happened to the nation's moral and ethical standards is Ruth Ben-Giat, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his own image. Then, with two durable dictatorships, Russia and Iran, forming an alliance in waging a war against Ukraine, We'll look into how Putin stays in power as catastrophic losses of Russian soldiers pile up and how the Ayatollahs hold on to power in Iran in the face of a youthful revolution led by women that has spread to all walks of life across the country. Joining us is Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die, and we'll discuss his latest book, co-authored with Luke and Wei, Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. Then finally, following a hearing last week before the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties on the threat of white Christian nationalism, we'll speak with Dr. Bradley Onishi, a scholar of religion and the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Review of Books and Religion and Politics, among others. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Giat, who is an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and the recipient of Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships and an advisor to Protect Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN and MSNBC and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his image. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Ben-Giat. Thank you. So, Ruth, I wonder, I think about what children are taught and what they see from what's happening to this country. You know, the new American success story is one in which liars and cheats can make it all their way to all the way to the presidency of the United States. And tomorrow, this extraordinary liar and this brazen fraud, George Santos, will be sworn in as a Republican congressman. So what kind of message does that send to our kids? Well, it, it, I mean, it sends a, a terrible message, but it's a logical outcome of having uh, someone uh, like Trump, who's a criminal in many, many ways and has lied and cheated his entire 
uh, career. Let's remember that he was under investigation for fraud when he ran for president in 2016. And and so when when an autocrat or autocratic minded leader takes over a party, they reshape it in their own image. And so really Trump's values and methods have become the GOP's. And indeed, the party embraced the big lie that's lying um, and, you know, is is fully enmeshed in uh, in a cover up of their conspiracy to help overturn the election, which is a defrauding of the American people and the violent assault on the Capitol. So the GOP in its practice now uh, is a lying and fraudulent party. And so in a way, um, as I'm arguing in this essay that's going to publish tomorrow, uh, George Santos fits right in. Well, in terms of cheating, I mean, we've just seen the release of Trump's taxes and all these secret accounts he had abroad. A lot of money was funneled through Azerbaijan, which, of course, is a is a real black hole in terms of politics and international finance. And, he, of course, he's friendly with some of the, the oligarchs from Azerbaijan, as it happens. Interesting enough, the leak of this documents has created... A backlash with the GOP, and uh, now the Republicans are threatening to cut the extra funding that Biden managed to get for the IRS, the $82 billion extra, so that they could actually make the very wealthy in this country pay their taxes when we have such rampant inequality. So there you have the GOP legitimizing not paying taxes and essentially celebrating Trump's being a tax cheat. Yeah, well, that's also part of the GOP's embrace of, of autocracy, really. They, this party has exited democracy. And this is the big drama that we have, that we have a bipartisan system, unlike a lot of other places in the world, only got two parties. And if one party <laughs> exits democracy, no longer upholds accountability, transparency, uh, is just nakedly um, pursuing uh, plunder, um, you know, of the environment, plunder of the economy, uh, benefits of only the rich, minoritarian rule. What? How do you govern? And so, con- the new Congress will will come in, and there'll be George Santos sitting there with uh, kindred spirits. You know, one third of the House will be election deniers, and a lot of these people are are again they share these other attitudes. Um, they don't want the rich to pay taxes. They don't want to have the environment uh, bettered. In fact, Mike Pence a few weeks ago uh, had a, a tweet where he said, I hope that this you know, climate change hearing is the last we ever have because they want to plunder the environment. That's what Bolsonaro, who's now in Florida, uh, after he had to flee Brazil, uh, he tried to do the same thing. He plundered, he did plunder the, the Amazon. So this is what they're about. Well, Santos, of course, uh, we're starting to learn it looks as if the mystery about where his money came from, and he lied about working for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, etc., and lied about everything and invented his family connections to the Holocaust and his own connections to the slaughter at a nightclub down in Florida, uh, even had a charity for you know, rescuing little puppy dogs, which all the money pocketed. But it turns out that He's made a lot of trips recently to Russia, and his campaign was in part financed by 
uh, relatives of uh, of a sanctioned uh, Russian oligarch, uh, Vexenberg. But the most alarming thing then about this character, to my mind, was that he was at that recent gathering of the New York uh, Republicans at which Marjorie Taylor Greene made the outrageous keynote speech in which she said that if she and Steve Bannon had planned January the 6th, they would have done it better and then they would have been armed. And he was there cheering them along. So that's the work that you do, Ruth. So this guy's hanging out with American and European fascists and fascist sympathizers. So how low can you go? Well, he was also at January 6th at the rally. And he also um, claimed that he uh, wanted to, you know, he offered to or did help insurrectionists with their legal bills. As we'll know more and more, he is he is the whole range of the GOP today, um, you know, campaign funded by uh, the bagman and relative of a Russian oligarch, Czech, um, uh, making declarations that are echoing Kremlin talking points, Czech. He called Ukraine a totalitarian regime. He said they should welcome Russia uh, into their provinces. That's a quote from a tweet. Um, and he, you know, he, and really the, one of the interesting things from the point of view of um, charismatic authoritarians and personality cults is he, if you take all of his lies about himself together, they conform to this thing that Trump did, too, of trying to be all things to all people. And one of the unusual things about these characters is from Mussolini onward, Mussolini was a total atheist, but he was the one who made the deal with the Vatican. And they say different things to different people, and they can be what everyone wants them to be. So to appeal to African-Americans, he said he was part black. To appeal to Jews, he was Jewish. He had grandparents who escaped the Holocaust. To appeal to Islamophobes, his mother died on 9-11. He had something for everyone. And, and this is how Trump was as well. Um, and, and so as we know more and more about Santos and put him in context, which is what I tried to do, um, look at the logic of how somebody like this can be supported by a party can come to be and come to have a political career. Um, we see that he fits the bill of the, the new GOP very well. Well, one of the things I recall about 9-11 was on that very day uh, when the building came down and the, the day the 3,000 Americans perished in the most horrible way, Donald Trump went on local New York TV and bragged about the fact that now the towers have gone down, my building is the tallest on Wall Street. I mean, are these people, as well as being fascist sympathizers or neo-fascists or whatever you want to label them, are they also sociopaths? I mean, it would seem to be obvious. Yeah, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but, um, you know, he, he, he's a, this person is a serial liar, and... You know, in a way, you have to say George Santos uh, between quotes because he's a construct. And there we go back to uh, being everything that you think people want you to be. And and that's whether that's sociopathy or it's or narcissism or whatever we're going to call it. It's not um, it's somebody who is a con man. It goes with the con man personality. And I think it's maybe in the conclusion of Strongman, I write that authoritarians have a lot in common with con men. 
Um, they get millions of people to believe that they love them and they're doing well by them. And in fact, they despise them and they're plundering them. Um, so it's all very sad. And uh, that this person is uh, being seated in Congress is a scandal. But the bigger scandal is that one third of the House is going to be election deniers and they're sitting there, too. So he's in good company. He's found his tribe. Well, Kevin McCarthy hasn't said a damn thing about him, right? He he needs his vote, doesn't he? I mean, that's how, how low they've sunk. Yeah, he needs his vote. But you could say that that's typical politicking. What isn't typical politicking is is they there are Republicans who are going to make an example of Santos, like Tulsi Gabbard, who hauled him on you know Fox News and eviscerated him, but <laughs> failed to say that he was there on January 6th. So, you know, those Republicans who, even if they do speak out, they all know that they can't touch certain subjects, which is the giant criminality of having staged a coup attempt, which none of them have any remorse for. Um, and you just yourself said, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about uh, doing it all over again and doing it better so it would succeed. With arms, yes. Well, and of course, Tulsi Gabbard didn't bring up the Russian connections since she herself is clearly, I don't know whether she's on Putin's payroll, but short of that, she's a, one of the useful idiots along with Tucker Carlson that parrot uh, Kremlin talking points. Yeah, and that's why she's been able to uh, occasionally fill in for Tucker Carlson, who does the same thing. That's, that's a very pointed substitution that Tucker Carlson is making. And I think this this brings up a point. We it's it's a sobering point, but and I've been trying to get people to see the GOP um, as an autocratic party embedded in foreign far right networks for a long time. Um, the same as very early, I tried to get people to see Trump as an authoritarian, and people were like, "Well, that's not something we have here," but now we do have it here. And the GOP truly is, look at the you know, adulation for Orban, who comes to CPAC. Um, Giorgio Meloni, the neo-fascist prime minister of Italy, is very involved with the GOP and sees them as a kindred spirit. So I think the sooner we accept that um, many, many of these people in Santos, again, he's got his own Russian connections um, and who knows what else. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of new global right and the GOP is a hub of it. Well, we've seen how incredibly effective Putin's investment in Brexit was, basically paralyzed the UK to this day. So they do very well with, you know, rather small investments. But just in terms of Santos, obviously there's a buyer's remorse now in Nassau County. A lot of the voters are feeling burned. The guy that ran against him, the Democrat, was obviously, he was a kind of country club rich guy, thought he was... It'd be a cakewalk for him. He has a background, by the way, in in opposition research. So why, why? My understanding is that the DCCC hired a bunch of interns to do opposition research. So the Democrats definitely dropped the ball. But there's no bias remorse, as far as I can say, in this country, at least not enough, amongst Trump's base. And what explains that, uh, Ruth? Why are they still sticking with this guy when every day more and more evidence comes out about his criminality and eventually, I think, his treachery? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it has to do with the psychology of these 
leader follower bonds. And it's it's been like this uh, the world around for a hundred years. Once these people bond with these characters, they stick with them till the bitter end. And they and, and it takes well, it took in Italy and and Germany, it took being bombed by the Allies. That and now there you had, of course, a one party, you know, one party dictatorship, highly repressive environment. But it was only when the bombing started, 1942-43, that larger numbers of people started to curse Hitler and Mussolini in public, and the personality cult started to fray. So here we are in a, it's all the more extraordinary because we're in an open society. <clears throat> Trump did not, you know, make a dictatorship. We have a pluralistic media environment. And yet he got these people right, with loyalty oaths, telling them he loved them, America first, MAGA, he got them to have this undying loyalty to him, this undying bond, and it stuck through thick and thin. And he's been very skilled at using the usual autocrat tools of the victimhood. He's, it's a witch hunt against him. And so they're very good at making people feel protective of them as though they are vulnerable. Um, and that's what the big lie did. It allowed it allowed his followers to put off seeing him as a loser. He was the winner and he was unjustly robbed of what was rightfully his. So as bad as Trump is, and you and I have had a number of conversations about the horror of this man and how you'd have to scour this country to find a human being worse than him. And I don't, I think he'd have a hard time literally finding a human being worse <laughs> than him. Yet he became president of the United States. So how do we deal with that? What's even worse, I think, are the Kevin McCarthy's and the Mitch McConnell's. You know, the traditional Republicans, if that's not being too kind a description. Why aren't they standing up? What kind of moral cowardice is at play here to allow this grotesquery to continue? And, of course, tomorrow is going to be an absolute disgrace as they swear this guy in and McCarthy cravenly begs for votes from the lunatic fringe. Yeah, it's it's a very sad, you know, syndrome, but it's one that's very familiar to me, studying uh, authoritarians uh, who, who intimidate, who threaten, who co-opt, co who corrupt people. And the goal of somebody like Trump is to make everyone be their worst, sel worst selves possible and lower the bar um, and that's what I meant in the beginning, that their values become the party's values. So McCarthy, the, I, I'm always haunted by this, you know, before Trump had the nomination back in 2016, when it all could have been avoided, he knew, and he said to Paul Ryan in a closed door meeting, I think Putin pays Trump. And because he said that, and Trump heard that he said that, um, he had to become, to have any kind of career, he had to shut up about that entirely. And he had to become the biggest lackey of all. And he's done that very, very successfully um, up to this day. But so that decision and that change in him was made early on precisely because he, he, he was a threat because he, he voiced, even if it was only to Paul Ryan in a private meeting, he he had the guts to say what other people were only thinking. I think Putin pays Trump. Um, and look at the change. Well, Ruth Bengad, I thank you so much for joining us here. And I hope, even though we're starting out the new year with this 
depressing reality of the Republican Party that there are some better angels out there that will emerge. It can't be another year of Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore, and I'm sure you don't. Well, he he has lost a lot of support, and uh, Ron DeSantis, who it's a different conversation, he's, he's equally extreme, but uh, there may be more and more movement away from Trump in the coming year. But with DeSantis, that's out of the frying pan into the fire, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Ruth. It's a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Ben-Gad, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and the recipient of the Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships and an advisor to Project Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. And she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his image. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into the durability of dictatorships, as in the case of Russia, Putin holds on to power in spite of catastrophic losses in the war in Ukraine, and the Ayatollahs hold on to power in Iran in the face of a youthful revolution. I'm the great pretender Adrift in a world of my own I play the game But to my real shame You've left me to dream all alone Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Com- Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die. And his latest book, co-authored with Luke and Wei, is Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Levitsky. Thanks for having me. So in terms of durable authoritarianism or durable dictatorships, Russia and Iran have formed an alliance in waging a war against Ukraine. And we've just seen from the recent headlines out of Ukraine that the Russians suffered enormous casualties. Hundreds were killed in one missile strike. And you wonder how, in the face of these catastrophic losses, does Putin hold on to power? And the same is true in, in Iran, where the Ayatollahs yeah. hold on to power. Is, you know, how, do, how do they do it in the face of this youthful revolution led by these brave young women? And apparently the, the revolution has spread to all walks of life across the country. So those are the two examples I'd like to start with. 
Sure. Uh, I think the two cases are somewhat different. And, um, you know, in Iran, obviously, the, the we haven't seen the, the um, final acts of this play yet. The This is a, a pretty robust opposition challenge, and um, the regime's survival is by no means secured. Now, Russia is a uh, we're only indirectly seeing the legacies of a revolutionary regime. We argue in, in, in our book that regimes that are born dictatorships, that are born of violent revolution, tend to be pretty robust for several reasons. Um, and Iran is directly a revolutionary regime. It's born out of the 1979 revolution, uh, and that has given the regime a robustness to a whole series of challenges, international isolation, a devastating war with Iraq in the 1980s, the death of, of founding uh, leader Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989, terrible economic crisis, and a series of protests beginning with the Green Revolution protests in 2009, another massive series of protests in 2019, and then again uh, today. So the, the regime um, is now 40 plus years old and has survived a, a, a series of difficult challenges. The Russian regime is a little more complicated because the Putin regime is not born of violent social revolution. The, so, the Soviet Union was born of violent social revolution. That would turn out to be, in the 20th century, one of the most long-lived dictatorships in, in the modern world, uh, but it collapsed. And the, so Putin draws on a couple of legacies of the, the, of the, the old revolutionary state. One of them is a utter and complete destruction of alternative power centers under the Soviet Union, uh, which the legacy of which is a very, very weak civil society even today. And the second thing that Putin benefits from is a very extensively developed coercive apparatus, which was only partially dismantled after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So Putin is obviously not directly um, – this is, this is not a revolutionary regime – but he does benefit from a couple of legacies of the revolutionary regime. So in terms of China, I was really struck by the spontaneous demonstrations that happened in China as a result of people being burned alive in a building because of the stringent COVID lockdowns. And you get the feeling that even though it's, it's the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet, that there's a sort of independent spirit amongst the Chinese people. You know, we saw the young Chinese students at Tiananmen and also in Hong Kong as well. But then we saw it right across the country, people spontaneously uh, demonstrating. And even now, Xi Jinping is hinting that maybe he'll let people blow off a little steam every now and then. So what's the difference there in terms of Russia and China? Is it to do with the kind of culture, the people, their sense of either yearning for freedom or a sense of passivity? Uh, I would be cautious about making any generalizations about the culture or the people. Societies go through periods of protest, unrest, contestation, also periods of relative acquiescence or passivity uh, in ways that we can't always predict. Um, and so it, 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 there's no reason, at least in my mind, why we might not at some point, could be a month from now, could be six years from now, could be 20 years from now, see uh, 
a period of contestation and protest in uh, in Russia, as we've seen in other post-Soviet states at times, and as we've seen erupt seemingly out of nowhere in parts of the Arab world a decade ago. Um, so I don't think there's anything in, the, in Russian society that that um, that necessarily makes them passive. This is a regime where uh, where civil society was was essentially defanged for three quarters of a century. It's a regime in which the state has an awful lot of economic power. So the state's ability to affect people's daily lives, uh, even to shut off the heat, to deprive people of of, of jobs and other opportunities is, is quite high, which weakens civil society. It's also a, a place where the economy has been, until pretty recently, has been pretty strong. Um, and the state has had a lot of resources, thanks to the export of, of oil and gas. The state has had a lot of resources to buy a certain amount of of, of acquiescence. But none of that, none of that uh, assures that there won't be protests in the future. Uh, in the Chinese case, I mean, China is reaching a point, a level of development, a level of urbanization, education, wealth, where in other societies elsewhere in the world, whether it be Spain or Portugal or Argentina or South Africa or South Korea, you've begun to see protests. This is why a lot of uh, – many scholars, at least until recently, had anticipated that if China continued to develop and continued to modernize and, and, and increase level of, of, of education and wealth, that you would see a more demanding society. That was the expectation of many, many scholars, and it was – it was surprising to many scholars that over the last decade, last 15 years, uh, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party has been able to, to really quell um, potential opposition so successfully. So we're, this is, a, this is a, a, a level at which we should expect a more demanding society. I think it's still an open, an open question whether the regime has the mix of both economic carrots because um, – that the you know, Chinese citizens have, have done quite well, and individuals uh, who get education have, have been able to uh, get a lot of their demands and expectations met by the regime over the last 20 or 30 years, um, or whether the, this sort of mix of repression and opportunity will, will not be enough, and whether they'll, they'll, the regime will face greater challenge. I don't think we know, but this is a, this is a, a government, the Chinese Communist Party government, is unusually well equipped to deal with a demanding society. It's got a strong economy. It's got a very effective surveillance capacity, as you mentioned, uh, and it's got pretty responsive institutions as far as autocracies go. Most autocracies are really obtuse. Most autocracies don't listen to society well. And relative to most autocracies, including the Russian one, this is a pretty responsive regime. So in your new book, Stephen Levitsky, Revolution and Dictatorship, the Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. You analyze 13 revolutionary regimes, including the Soviet Union, Iran, Vietnam, Algeria, Cuba, etc. What about the factor, for the want of a better description, the simple exhaustion that people feel, uh, like in Zimbabwe, which is a, was ruled for the longest time by a despot, uh, Robert Mugabe, and his assassin, his hitman, the crocodile, named the crocodile because he threw all of Mugabe's opponents, fed them to the crocodiles. He's now in charge. And the place is a complete catastrophe. It's been a basket case for decades. The people are just 
starving, their money's worthless. And, and a similar situation, not as grave, has also happened in Venezuela, where I think something like almost a third of the country of people have just left. Is that a factor? In other words, do dictators, even if their regimes are ruinous, the ruin tends to make them durable? That's not a universal law. Um, it, exhaustion with a regime and, and, and bottoming out, spectacularly poor performance, as you see, and I think you point to the, the best two cases in Zimbabwe and Venezuela, that, that can cut both ways. It can lead um, to discontent, um, often a fracturing of the regime, uh, meaning somebody in the regime decides enough is enough and, uh, uh, and pushes for change. And when, and when regime elites split, regimes often become vulnerable to collapse. You saw this, for example, um, uh, not quite as much of a case as bottoming out, but Serbia in 2000 was a, was a disaster, was a mess, and, and you got the overthrow of, of most of it. So it's not always the case that if you – this is not a recipe for success for autocrats to bottom out into the worst possible outcome. But you are right that there are cases where things get so bad that a couple of things happen, that um, people are the, – the economy is so bad that people are – so many people are either struggling to survive and so um, forced to dedicate so much time and energy to sheer survival that they cannot organize and protest. Or, or and or the most discontented and able people all leave the country. And you're right, almost a third of Venezuela's population has, has departed. And so uh, this happened in Cuba as well, and it's happening in Cuba again today, that when, when there's an exit, an exit option for opposition or for potential opponents, that um, kind of paradoxically strengthens the regime, right? If people who are likely to rise up and protest – leave for Miami instead, then, um, then that can strengthen the regime. So you're absolutely right that in Venezuela and in, um, and, and in Zimbabwe, things got so bad that the opposition basically w was exhausted. And, um, and, and that sort of perversely strengthened the regime. But it's not, it, it, it's not in the opening chapters of the autocratic playbook. It's a pretty risky strategy. Destroying your country's economy um, is, a, is a really risky strategy. In fact, there's a pretty strong relationship between economic performance and authoritarian durability. You're much, much better off being Singapore and China and Vietnam and governing over a, a pretty prosperous or growing economy as an autocrat than you are plunging your economy into the worst possible disaster. So it's true that it worked as a survival strategy in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela, it doesn't work most of the time. Well, how much is it working in Russia, though, given that so many talented young Russians have fled because of the... Yeah. Big well, I think it's too early to tell. Right. Um, Russia's economy was in... rebounded very, very successfully in the early part of the 21st century. It had been a total disaster. One of the world's uh, worst economic collapses in the 1990s and the rebound, particularly in uh, reinforced by by very high fuel energy prices, led uh, Putin had a, quite a bit of public of genuine public support 
for well over a decade in the early 21st century because Russia was doing relatively well. It's only pretty recently that the, now with, with in international sanctions and the cost of the war that Russia is really suffering. But Putin also benefits – it's very hard to measure this, at least from the outside, but Putin probably has benefited from some rally around the flag effect. Usually when countries go to war for at least some period of time, there is um, some rallying around the flag. You see this just about everywhere on earth. Um, so I think it's too early to tell what the effect of this disaster will be. But I, I would venture a guess that given um, – how much harder this war of choice of Putin's has made life for many or probably most Russians, uh, young men who don't want to go to war, families who are uh, either worried about or losing loved ones, and of course, uh, all sorts of economic opportunities now uh, being stripped away. I think it's pretty safe to say that this is going to generate a fair amount of discontent, that, that, that Putin is, in terms of his own status, the, the security of his government, um, he was on much, much stronger footing before he went to war in Ukraine than he is now. So, Stephen Levitsky, just in the last couple of minutes then, what foreign policy then could the U.S. government craft around what you and Luke and Wei brought to the table with your new book, Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins mm-hmm. of Durable Authoritarianism? In other words, can you give some advice <laughs> to Blinken uh, in terms of what he should be doing about Russia and particularly what he should be doing about Iran? Uh, those are tough. Um, if I had uh, good answers, I'd have a much, much better paying job, I think. Um, listen, I mean, from our book, there there are a couple of, of lessons. I mean, some, some of the United States' most spectacular foreign policy failures in the 20th century had to do with revolutionary regimes, not so much Russia, but think about Vietnam, Cuba, Iran. Those are pretty spectacular failures. Um, I think a couple of lessons can be can be drawn. Um, one, if you're going to get, if you're going to stop a revolutionary regime, it's probably best to nip it in the bud, um, to, to destroy a regime before it consolidates. And, um, you know, one case of that arguably is the um, is the initial regime in 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 Afghanistan, the Taliban, which is just uh, initially destroyed, at least uh, by the U.S. invasion in the early 2000s. Another case arguably is the uh, Islamic State, which was in a very embryonic proto form um, in the early part of the 21st century and was effectively destroyed. Um not clear whether it had a, it had any real chance of consolidating, but that's a case, arguably, of a sort of preemptive destruction of a revolutionary state. The uh, because once the regime begins to take hold, a very aggressive stance reinforces elite cohesion. One of the things that allows revolutionary regimes to survive is the entire ruling elite is closes ranks. When uh, authoritarian regimes break down, when they split internally, when the elite divides. So if the elite closes ranks, it has a very, very good chance of success, even when it's failing, like in Zimbabwe. And what U.S. policy towards revolutionary regimes in Vietnam, in Iran, in Cuba, even in Nicaragua, what it did was um, 
create a very powerful existential threat for the regime, which led the regime to close ranks. So the U.S. aggression against Cuba clearly helped to solidify the regime in the 1960s and 1970s. More com- different, more complicated story in Vietnam because of the war in the South, but also the war with, with Vietnam helped to, to uh, reinforce cohesion. And the same thing in, uh, in Iran. So a, once a regime is in place, a, a hardline strategy against it, unless you're going to kill it, unless you're going to destroy the regime, invade and occupy Cuba and overthrow Castro, a threatening, uh, a, a very hostile, aggressive policy is probably going to reinforce elite cohesion, which will strengthen the regime, will sort of backfire. I don't think that that, that offers Blinken any strategy towards Putin, but... But you've given a pretty solid historical proof there. And I thank you for joining us, uh, Stephen Levitsky. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Levitsky, who is a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die. And his latest book, co-authored with Lucan Way, is Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the threat of white Christian nationalism, which was the subject of hearings last week before the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Stuck around St. Petersburg When I saw it was a time for a change Killed the Tsar and its ministers Anastasia screamed in vain I rode a tank, held a generous rank when the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank. Pleased to meet you. Soldier of the Cross, Soldier of the Cross, you carry the sword of faith. Soldier of the Cross. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Bradley Anishi, who is a scholar of religion and the co-host of Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, and Religion and Politics, among other outlets. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bradley Onishi. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Bradley. And last week, the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties held its seventh and last hearing on the threat of white Christian nationalism. And also, it's interesting to note that there's been some complaints from faith leaders about the recently released 845-page document released by the January 6th committee on their hearings, which basically doesn't even mention the threat of Christian nationalism as it manifested itself on January the 6th on the insurrection. Actually, it mentions it uh, exactly once and only in passing. So let's start with the House Oversight 
subcommittee. What's your sense of whether this is a clear and present danger as we enter the year 2023? And we know that some of these rabid white Christian nationalists in the Congress, particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, are playing an outsized role because Kevin McCarthy, the incoming speaker, desperately needs their vote. It very much is a clear and present danger. And I think we can see that in the people that we think often of, unfortunately, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other people who are front and center uh, in Congress and in uh, our uh, other forms of leadership. I think we can also see it in churches and other movements uh, around the country. Uh, I have uh, been doing an audio series on the New Apostolic Reformation, which some people may have heard of, but this is a group of people who mobilized millions of Christians ahead of January 6th to think of the election as illegitimate, to think of Donald Trump as the rightful president, and encouraged the leaders, encouraged them to uh, be at D.C. if they could on that fateful day, and if they couldn't, uh, they encouraged them to support those who would be. Uh, we reported earlier today on our show that some of them even met uh, at the White House uh, in the week ahead of January 6th and uh, were uh, given access, I shall say, uh, to uh, Trump White House officials. So uh, this threat continues. Uh, those who helped to instigate the insurrection uh, were not re held responsible and their white Christian nationalist supporters uh, are still fighting the fight of the big lie and the desire to take back the country and their mind for God. And so here we are. But then why did the January 6th committee not talk about this key component in the uh, insurrection? You, you saw the flags, and it's pretty clear that there was a strong component of white Christian nationalism there, and yet they didn't mention it or barely mentioned it in their 845-page document, and one of the key members of the committee, uh, Adam Kinziger, is himself an evangelical who's incredibly outspoken in his criticism of white Christian nationalism. So I have uh, maintained that the January 6th Select Committee uh, has been a beneficial endeavor uh, for our country. It has helped keep January 6th and its various uh, actors and networks front and center. But the lack of mention of Christian nationalism uh, is a grand failure uh, when it comes to their report and to their investigation. Uh, for those of us, scholars of religion and journalists who have studied this, uh, the religious dimensions of January 6th are, as you say, in uh, front and center. Uh, the flags, the symbols, the uh, Bible verses, they're all there. Uh, not to mention the prayer gatherings, the worship song singing, and uh, so on and so forth. And as I just mentioned, not to not to overlook the organizing factors, the way that those Christian nationalist leaders rallied their supporters to be there on that day. My suspicion is that the committee is fearing backlash and also that there are members of the committee uh, who do not want to face down the real threat that there are Christians. And let me just be honest, that there are white Christians in the United States who pose a danger to our democracy. There's a sense of Christian privilege here where uh, if this were another religious group, if, if there were uh, uh, Muslim leaders who spouted violent rhetoric about the need to battle uh, evil forces in our country, uh, we would see a much different uh, approach, if you ask me. 
Well, I find it extraordinary that, I mean, going back to Ronald Reagan's election, where he defeated Jimmy Carter, who is, is a genuine evangelical Christian. He teaches Sunday school. He's a real serious, not to use too much of a pejorative, but a serious Bible basher. You know, so, And yet they voted for a twice-divorced Hollywood actor and not this guy, the Christian right. And then at the rally, Trump basically put a target on Mike Pence, and, and nobody's more Christian than Mike Pence. He, you know, he prays all the time, you know, in his office, and he's very devout. And yet Trump summoned the mob, put a target on his back. They erected a scaffold to hang him. And frankly, and I talked to a legal scholar the, the other day who was clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he pointed out that Trump either wanted his vice president murdered or would have been happy with the result because Trump would have then been able to appoint his flunky as a vice president and make sure that the election wouldn't be certified. So this is the level of obscenity that we have in this country in the name of Christianity. So I guess it's a long-winded question. Why do authentic Christians like Jimmy Carter, why are they tossed aside? Is it as simple as this, Bradley, that white Christian evangelicalism is just a front for right-wing politics? I don't think it's that simple, but I do think it. it the, the case of Jimmy Carter and, uh, and also the case of Mike Pence are good examples of the fact that if we stay with Carter, uh, there's no doubting his identity with white evangelicalism. He is a born and raised Southern Baptist, a rural farmer, a Sunday school teacher, as you said, a military officer. He married his high school sweetheart. Uh, it's like he was built in a lab uh, when it comes to this kind of profile. And yet his politics didn't line up with their agenda. And so what that example shows us is that it's not a matter of identity or piety. It's a matter of power that you are there to help us accomplish our goals when it comes to abortion, when it comes to foreign wars, the military, immigration, and so on. I think the other answer, and this is where we might get to Mike Pence, is that in the wake of the Obama years, the religious right turned from a group that uh, talked about winning uh, back America by way of voting and persuasion, by way of hearts and minds and prayer, to a group that dropped those uh, those pretenses and determined to take the country back any way possible. And Trump was the perfect guy because he's not a Christian, and therefore he's not held back by Christian virtue. He's not going to need to act like a Christian man. He's not need, going to need to say the right Christian things like Pence or Rubio or, or Ted Cruz might, Mike Huckabee. He's a barbarian. He's a brutal, brutal leader who they knew, they intuited, would do anything needed to punish and oppress and marginalize their enemies. And when Mike Pence wouldn't do what they wanted on that day, he became their enemy. And so if you look closely at those gallows, I, I chronicle this in my book, there are Bible verses written uh, on the gallows uh, justifying the, the, the attempted murder of a Christian vice president named Mike Pence. And to me, those two factors are very important in this whole equation. So, Bradley, as this year begins, 
is this going to be, we started now talking about it as a clear and present danger, but you know, there are indications, for example, that young Americans are drifting away from Christianity, and I think for good reasons, looking at these televangelists, they have nothing to do with what the prophet Jesus was, was all about, which is ministering to the poor. You know, you've got, what's his name, Osteen, the televangelist saying, you know, God wants you to be a winner, not a whiner. You know, I mean, <laughs> the prosperity gospel, it's a, it's a heresy. So are we talking about something that's eclipsing and in decline? Uh, I think the answer is yes and no. I, I have a, a colleague and friend, Andrew Whitehead, who's made the case very persuasively that uh, in terms of numbers, there is decline. It's an aging group. It's a group who is having a hard time recruiting new people. It's also a, a group that's having a hard time, as you say, uh, keeping its young uh, in the flock. And so uh, the, the religious nuns, those who are unaffiliated with religion, are the fastest growing religious group or non-religious group in the United States. However, uh, two, two things and two reasons, I think, that we should not uh, consider this group to be one that will be going away anytime soon. One, they consider themselves to be the founders of the country, and they are overrepresented in our government. 88% of Congress is Christian in some way. Now, not all those are evangelicals, but the point is, is that they are overrepresented in the halls of our government from Congress to mayoral seats uh, and everything in between. Uh, and so the amount of power and money that has been invested in the infrastructure of American politics on the part of this demographic is immense. Uh, number two, white Christian nationalism, as I maintain in the book, is is more than church attendance. It's it's now a cultural identity. There are people who don't attend church who call themselves Christians or evangelical because they're telling a story of who they are. When they say evangelical, they they, they mean someone who's conservative and who supports certain uh, policies when it comes to immigration, certain approaches to abortion, certain understandings of the founding of the country and where it went wrong and how we can fix it. And so that story continues, even if uh, some of the measures like church attendance show us that uh, it seems as if Christianity on the whole is in decline in the United States. So in the last couple of minutes, I've often talked to religious scholars and religious figures on uh, Christmas Day, I had the co-founder of the Poor People's Campaign on to talk about the message of the Prophet Jesus uh, on the birthday of the Prophet Jesus and uh, how it has, has strayed, shall we say. So I've often invoked the notion of where's the religious left. So just in closing, can there be a religious left in this country? In other words, the values of white Christian nationalism are so horrific, and you've you've got regimes like the Ayatollahs in Iran. We've seen what theocracy does. We've certainly seen what theocracy does with the Taliban on a daily basis. So I'm just wondering whether there can be a countervailing movement to basically put these people in their place because they're heretics, really. There can be, and I think we saw some of that in uh, the 2022 midterms. Uh, I, I think some of the things that will are a challenge on that front are the fact that the religious left is smaller and it's more diverse. And, and don't get me wrong, anyone listening, I think diversity is uh, is a great uh, uh, value of American democracy and American society. But diversity means uh, coalition building. It means a lot of work uh, getting on the same page and cooperation. And that work is invaluable. It's rich. It's part of what makes the human tapestry uh, so wonderful. However, 
The other side trades in uniformity. It trades in conformity. And so the ability to mobilize politically is a much uh, straighter line when it comes to the right or even the religious right as it may on the religious left. And so we saw that in the, the 2020 midterm, to, to 2022 midterms. We saw Americans vote for democracy as the kitchen table issue. We saw groups from uh, you know, mainline Christians to Reform Jews to uh, Asian American Buddhists and so on and so on and so on uh, realize the threats that are being posed to our democracy uh, and those continue. And so the organizing, the marching, uh, the activism needs to continue uh, as we continue to face uh, threats to our republic going forward. Well, Dr. Randy Anishi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bradley Anishi, who's a scholar of religion and the co-host of Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the LA Review of Books and Religion and Politics, among other outlets. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Appeared by half past